Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 42. This is Writing Excuses, alternate history. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Margaret. I'm Howard. And we have a really fun topic today. We are going to talk about how to world build your alternate history stories. Mary, what is an alternate history? Well, an alternate history is where you take a cusp point in real, you go back and you look at actual history and then you pick a cusp point and then extrapolate what things would have looked like if a different thing had happened. Okay. Um, so usually the the alternate history is taking place some years after this breaking point, right? This cusp point, as you called it. Um, how do you do that? Like, how do you, how do you guess what would happen? Well, as the person who writes alternate history, <laughs> um, the the thing is that that uh, history goes through patterns all the time. We there there are certain things that are fairly predictable, like the way people respond to certain stimulus, uh, the way we respond to certain events. So what you do is you just kind of look at the way those patterns shape when when the different thing happens. Um, for instance, we know that uh, that there's a, a kind of twenty year cycle um, in fashion. So if something happens where there's a a, a cusp point. Then, then fashion is going to go through a predictable change between uh, veneration of the artifice and one of of the natural, and so you can you can kind of look at those things. We know that people react to uh, to empire in predictable ways. We know that people react to oppression in predictable ways. That, that there are patterns there, and so you can apply those. Um, like a, a cusp point that I never got to exploit, but but was really fascinated by was uh, the Prince Regent's daughter um, died in childbirth, uh, bearing a male son, a male son. Well done, Mary. <laughs> a male heir. Um, and Queen Victoria was born in response to that. There was a race to produce another child because Princess Charlotte was the only option at that point. Had she survived, and and the pregnancy was survivable, uh, the 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 doctor, her obstetrician, refused to use forceps, and if he had used forceps, chances are she actually would have survived that childbirth, and and the t- the son would have too, and the British Empire would have looked totally different, completely completely different. So that's an interesting cusp point where you can sit there and go, well, we know how we reacted when Queen Victoria took the throne. What happens if we map that onto something that happens earlier? Now, I've heard um, 
people who talk about alternate history kind of, maybe this is an artificial distinction, but make a distinction between books that are trying to explore what would have happened, like you say, on these cusp points, and then books where one thing about our world is different. And instead of trying to go all the way back and extrapolate, you're writing a story where our world is basically the same plus X. Like Naomi Novik's... Uh, yeah, His Majesty's Dragon. Right, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the glamorous histories. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so do you see these as a real distinction? Um, are they approached, world-building approached in different ways? I think the world-building is actually approached in exactly the same okay. way. That mm-hmm. you're, you're looking at the ramifications and ripples. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the inciting incident is, is different right. in both cases. Okay. You know, in mm-hmm. one case, it's a, an, a, an action, a, a cusp point. And then the other, it's the, the and now we have magic. Right. Um, Do you make kind of a, um, I, I remember you talking about glamorous histories where something along the lines, I'm going to put words in your mouth that you can change. It was something along the lines of you were not interested in the butterfly flaps its wings. And so America is, is suddenly um, a communist. Um, you know, you're not looking at, oh, if humans had magic way back when, I'm not looking at now, uh, 2000 years later that we have completely different nations. Um, but some people might be writing history that way. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think of these, I, I do draw a dichotomy. There is the, there is the event based, the trigger based, the cusp based alternate histories. Um, and then there are alternate histories which I think of more as parallel alternates, okay. where the events, the events that we know all kind of happened, but they happened and magic was running along parallel to it. And what we are exploring in some cases is, uh, and I think of the glamorous histories in this regard, uh, how would the Napoleonic Wars have fallen out had there been magic? And yet we still win the, I say we, uh, the French don't win the Napoleonic Wars <laughs> in the glamorous histories. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the the reasons that we have the the useful other term historical fantasy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So what I write are uh, with the glamorous histories or historical fantasy, which is very similar to an alternate history in that it's as much grounded in the real world as possible with this, but it has this addition. Calculating stars, on the other hand, is a straight-up alternate history. Things happen differently, but I am not violating real world in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, how have you specifically done research for, say, the Glamorous Histories or the Calculating Stars or Ghost Talkers? It's, you know, it's honestly not any different from the way I do research for anything else. Um, I start with a broad overview to kind of get a sense of the world, and then I start thinking about how things shift. With the Glamorous Histories in particular, with my edition of Magic, I didn't want to shift the world very far, so I was very careful when I was constructing the world that that the choices I made did not shift the world too far when I was constructing the magic. So for me, the the distinction is less about the kind of research I do and more about the uh, the ways in which I'm applying it. It's, it's specifically the way I'm dealing with the world building based on that research. Okay. It feels almost like you're dealing with the effects of what, how do you see the timeline and the resiliency of the timeline if you were telling a time travel story? Yeah. Whereas, you know, do you believe that, is it a time travel where, 
you crush a butterfly and everything changes? Or is it a belief that the timeline is basically resilient, but if you go back in the past and make changes, you'll see some ripple effects, but it's not going to send us yeah. careening off into left field. Yeah. So with the glamorous histories, what with the insertion of magic into the world, um, everybody has magic. You know, uh, every nation, every people on the planet have magic. So that's that doesn't shift power dynamics at all. The fact that every because because I gave it to everybody. If I had just given it to one nation, that would have shifted power dynamics, and it would have been a very different story. Um, so, kind of a more general question: How do you approach writing about something like, for instance, World War One, where you know? A certain percentage of your audience is going to know way more about this topic than you will. Uh, Howard, you run into this, I think, with Schlock Mercenary with the, you were very good at the science-y parts. Um, but I'm sure many of your audience are better at the science-y parts. Um, at some point, at some point, I just have to be willing to let go because I am more interested in telling a story than in being right. Mm. And that's, I've, I've found that, that that's a healthy attitude in a lot of cases. And it's not that I, I don't need to be right. It's that I can say, oh, yeah, I got that wrong, but I'm going to continue to tell the story that I'm telling because I'm enjoying telling it and people are enjoying reading it. And if I can find a way to work better science into it, uh, I will. Um, the, the, the trickier bits... To, uh, to recover from if I've gotten wrong are when I've misrepresented an existing culture in ways that future extrapolation uh, don't account for. Specifically, in my case, uh, the interactions between officers and grunts, the, you know, the, the whole military culture. And, uh, and I've been fortunate in that I, uh, I stuck the landing several times just by having talked to the right people and gotten a sense for, uh, through being an old guy, a sense for how people react to other people because a lot of those things translated straight across. I think the talking to the right people is really key for a lot of this. Um, like I, I basically went out and said, I need World War I people to read this thing with calculating stars. I'm like, I need astronauts. I mean, I just want to hang out with astronauts too, mm. but I need rocket scientists. I need fighter pilots. I need, and, and asking the, the right people to, to talk to you. But the other thing is, if you don't know the answer to something, don't bring it up in the story. Like, this is one of the things that makes me look like I really know what I'm talking about. In the Calculating Stars, I very carefully never talk, never tell you how much that meteor weighs. I never right. tell mm -hmm. you how big that thing is. Yep. We did research. There's a range that I am comfortable with it being within that range, but I am not going to get specific about it because the moment I'm specific about it, that opens the possibility that I am wrong. Yeah, mm -hmm. we talk about this a lot, particularly in fantasy, that sometimes it is better 
to uh, to leave these things unsaid because sometimes when you start down that path and start explaining, you you work yourself into making it harder for the reader to suspend disbelief. Yeah, yeah. Um, one tool I also have found in this area, and I think I've mentioned before in the podcast, is uh, if it's an area about which I know I'm not an expert, and I know some of my readers are, I will generally take the perspective for viewpoint for that given chapter of a character who is not an expert, who can be cabbage head. And when they describe things wrong, the reader who are my experts can, can believably let themselves suspend disbelief and say, well, Kaladin just doesn't know a lot about horses. Yeah, he got that wrong. He obviously talks about not knowing a lot about horses. Yeah. One of the things that I've hit before when I'm working on a television show, one of the shows where I worked um, as a writer's assistant was called The Unusuals, and it was a cop show that took place in New York City. And so, you know, there are a lot of cop shows that take place in New York City, and so the audience is familiar with them. And, you know, we had police consultants, you know, that we talked to about things. And one of the first things that one of the first cops we talked to said, you guys know that there's no such thing as an APB. You know, the All Points Bulletin that is not a thing that the New York police use. If you put out what we think of when we think of an APB, it is called a finest bulletin. Huh. Because the NYPD- You're contacting all of New York's finest. finest. Our yeah. New York's finest. That's what it's called. And we're there and we're like, okay, this is accurate. If somebody mentions a finest bulletin in dialogue, we're going to have to stop and explain to everyone in the audience what we mean. Whereas if we say we're going to put out an APB on the suspect- Everyone watching knows what it is, and we're going to roll ahead with it. Yeah. Uh, Elementary uh, handled it a little differently the first couple of times they introduced that. It was, uh, I, you know, we, you need to put the word out. I'll put out a finest, you know, I'll mm-hmm. put out a finest bulletin. And then they just they just called it that. Right. And, uh, and I can see the decision going either way. Either way, it's, yeah. Hey, writers. Are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all, think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 
Um, let's go ahead and stop for our book of the week. Um, our book of the week is The Yiddish Policeman's Union. Yes, The Yiddish Policeman's Union by Michael Shaben, which is, it's funny, when it came up, I don't think of it as an alternate history book, but it absolutely is. It takes place in an alternate version of our world where Jewish refugees during World War II, instead of settling eventually in what was then Palestine, are in Sitka, Alaska. This was based on actual historical research. In There's this worldwide refugee crisis. Everyone's trying to figure out where one of the proposals somebody floated in the day was, well, we could send them to Alaska. Who's up there? You know, a lot of Native Alaskans, but leaving that aside, I'm sure they did at the time. Um, so it takes place in a world where Sitka is this bustling Yiddish language city, and you are following this intricate mystery, which ends up tying into the politics of how everyone wound up in Alaska mm. in the first place. One of the things that was so delightful to me reading this is, especially as an American Jew, seeing the ways it was both the same and different, the relationship that American Jews had with Sitka that you see American Jews having with Israel. And that was really kind of cool and often funny. I believe it won the Hugo, didn't it? Was, yes. Um, uh, it won basically everything. Everything it could win. Yeah. Yes. Mary, uh, before we jump to the book of the week, I saw you scribbling notes furiously. Oh, uh, so one of the things is slightly off the topic of, mm -hmm. of alternate history, but uh, w which is how to handle it when your character is actually an expert about something that you are not, uh -huh. uh, and you're trying to deal with that in the alternate history. And so I'll very quickly brush past this, which is that you you have your character demonstrate competence on something that you do understand. And then the reader believes that the character understands right. it. So they will grant you when you hand wave past other things that you have thought it through. That's awesome. Yeah, I use that trick all the time because <laughs> Elma is a mathematician and my math skills do not exist. Uh, the other thing that, that I was going to say um, is that one of the biggest problems with writing alternate history, like the, the, the all finest, uh, <laughs> is, um, is fighting common knowledge. There are things that people think they know because of the media that they have already absorbed. And so when you go into the the alternate history, sometimes you'll put something in there that is not actually a deviation and people will totally think it is. Like, so Andy Weir read Calculating Stars and was on a podcast talking about how he loved my alternate history touch of, of NACA which is the NACA, the National Advisory Committee of Aeronautics, which was a real organization that predates NASA. And, and this is someone who knows aerospace, but because common knowledge is so hardcore about NASA, 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 it's, it's a thing that, that, just, that he just missed. Similarly, when I was writing the book, I was you know, I had my beta readers were going, wow, you know, I love this alternate history where there are women of color in the computer room. <laughs> and I'm like, these are based on actual real women. But Hidden Figures wasn't out yet. And as soon, as soon as Hidden Figures came out, those that commentary totally went away. And and this is the thing that you have to fight when you're doing an alternate history is is that that line between 
how much do I want to shift the reader's awareness and how much do I just want to tell this story? And, you know, it is an alternate history. So maybe the common knowledge thing is the way things happened. I was on a panel uh, talking about, you know, how right do you need to get things? And somebody brought up the the use of Chinese as swearing in the Firefly series. Um, and they loved how uh, this was used to represent a melding of uh, Western culture and Eastern culture. And the linguist on the panel said, but they got it all wrong. There's no way that these people would be speaking in Western in- intonations and then would correctly inflect the Chinese, uh, the Chinese profanity. There's no way they'd get the pitches right. They okay. should have crappier Chinese accents. They should accents. have crappier Chinese accents. And he's absolutely right, except if they'd done crappy Chinese accents, the rest of us would have seen it as a slur on Chinese. And so... Or laziness on the or part. Or laziness yeah. on the part yeah. of the actors. And yeah. so I'm happy to. I'm happy that they decided to be wrong in their extrapolation. You know, of, there's, there's a pretty good YouTube series called History Buffs, which takes a look at historical movies and kind of goes down what they got wrong. But the, one of the reasons I like this, it is because about on half of those, they'd say, I agree with this change. By doing this, you are actually mm-hmm. emphasizing this mm-hmm. part of history, which is a real part that didn't happen during this time or didn't happen in this way. But when you present it for audiences, you make this tweak and get the right effect so that they actually learn the history, even though it's technically wrong. Yeah. And yeah. once in a while, I think that's what you do. Yeah. When you're you're talking about going back and looking at movies and things that get things wrong or right, um, one of the things that I want to talk about when we're talking about alternate history is actually fashion. Mm. Uh, this is a thing that I see people get wrong all the time. And it's not, oh, your fashion is wrong. How dare you? The problem is that when people do the research, they look at it and say, okay, this book is set in 1893. What were people wearing in 1893? But if you look at your own wardrobe, you have clothes in your wardrobe that are at least 20 years old. Sometimes more, as we are all nodding. With the, the, If someone is wearing everything that is from that year, if their home is decorated in only things from that year, then either that is an enormous wealth display um, or something has gone terribly wrong in their life because they've had to replace everything they own. Either way, you are making a character statement and you're making it by accident because of your research patterns. That's really cool. Very, very good tip. Um, I'm going to have to cut us here and give you guys some homework. Uh, The homework I want you to write is I want you to do an alternate history of an event in your life. We've been talking about macroscopic scale, you know, changes to to historical events and nations. I want you to just look back at something you've that's happened in your life and write that event as if it could have happened differently. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragon Steel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.